0: very much. Thank you for a nice welcome. It's a privilege to be here. And uh, somebody said that uh, Mr. Maddox says that when you have a speaker now every time. It's a standard line. He says, uh, and you may have heard of this gentleman, He has there have been more of his tapes sold than anybody else's, That, and that I shouldn't be impressed with that. Actually, how many of you were here when I did that talk, uh, which I called landing lights? Quite a few of you still. It is, uh, for those of you who end up to um, go on into pastoral ministry, it is vaguely humorous and also somewhat um, humbling to realize that on that particular day, as I think I said by confession, I had spoken at Grace Church in the morning and the evening, and I was driving to uh, Dr. MacArthur's home with him in the evening after church, and he said, well, now, you'll speak to the students in the morning. And I said, well, I know I'm supposed to do that, but I don't have a clue what I ought to say. And so he said, well, why don't you just tell them a few things that you would want them to know uh, that you would like to have known when you were their age as students? And so I went to my bed and I took an envelope and I wrote on the back of the envelope a few headings, which actually became the ten points or whatever it was of that message. I had nothing other than an envelope with ten points on it. And then, that sells more than all my finest attempts at biblical exposition. (laughs) very hard not to extrapolate from that to an approach which says, forget all that hard study, just give me an envelope and, uh, and, a, few, and a few points on the bank. Uh, in fact, I was visiting somebody just the other day, someone had died in our congregation or related to it, and I went to the home of this lady. She said it was very important for me to come, and I met there with she and her family, and as I was leaving, she said, this may seem like a funny thing to say, but I want you to know, she said, "that uh, that, that your tapes are wonderful. They put me to sleep every evening. And she thought this was a compliment. And uh, so I quickly added, well, I'm not surprised because when I read my notes on Saturday nights, they put me to sleep as well. So uh, for the tapes to do the same is just uh, an excellent correlation. It's a long number of years since I was where you are today, and that is in a prayer day in a college like this. But I remember these days. I remember they used to haul in speakers just like this. And uh, I used to sit out there and say who is this fellow and and, uh, what does he have to say? And sometimes, what do I care whether he has anything to say? And I knew what the framework of the day was and I knew what the objective was and I have to say to my shame that there were times on the prayer day in the college that I didn't derive very much from them at all. It wasn't because the day was laid out poorly. It wasn't because what was an offer was somehow beyond my um, needs or requirements but it was because of my attitude. There were other days that I remember still to this day, which were also prayer days. I'm sure they were no better, the speakers were no better, but the issue was my attitude. And so, I want to encourage you, I take it by the very fact that you're here, that there is in your heart a genuine desire to follow after Christ, and I want you to encourage you to at least make some time in this day, if you haven't made it, to get alone and just to take stock of where you are in your Christian pilgrimage. It's very easy in the midst of a routine like this and in a school like this to be kept buoyant by everything that is going on around you and then all of a sudden to discover that your own spiritual endeavors are far short of what they might be. In order perhaps to be a help to you in some way, and incidentally this evening at 8 when I get the privilege of coming back again, I would rather spend the time answering questions than, than just talking again, although I'll be glad to talk. It's not difficult for me to talk, as my wife would be able to tell you. But uh, I, I would be glad tonight to respond to stuff. So if you come, uh, the six of you that are planning to come back, if you come, uh, uh, then uh, we, can, we can talk together and uh, look at the Scriptures together. But this morning what I'd like to do is to turn your attention to the book of Titus. There are three chapters in Titus. It comes after 2 Timothy and before Philemon. But of course you know that. And i like to read from the 11th verse. <clears throat> and when I finally get to it, I've got three phrases that I want to leave with you. If you grow weary of me getting to them, be patient, I will come to them. And when we get to them, then we're, we're on the we're on the final approach towards conclusion, you know. And um, so you'll have something to look forward to at that point. Verse 11 of Titus chapter 2 reads like this. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age. While we wait... For the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. One of the most recent times in which I was here in Los Angeles, I was taken to a restaurant. I was going somewhere else and somebody took me to a restaurant before I left. It was a name like Marcellita's or something like that, I, I think. And uh, it, I remember that they served me enormous amounts of food, most of which I couldn't eat. And every so often, one of these waiters or waitresses would burst into song. And, um, you know, some of it was good and some of it was okay and some of it, really, they should have burst into song in the bathroom or something because it really, it really wasn't worth very much. And uh, it became apparent to me that the reason for this was somehow to enhance one's dining experience. Being a relatively cynical kind of person, I wasn't so sure that that was exactly what was going on. I had a sneaking suspicion that they were trying to distract me from the food that somehow or another it was either a little cold or a little something. And so when they were a bit shaky about what they brought out, they laid it down and quickly started into, you know, the hills are alive or something like that. Immediately one was caught up with that and it distracted you from the task. Now the interesting thing is that as you look around in the experience of churches in our day, what is true of the cafe has also crept into the church. Namely, that with the approach to the Bible, whereby it has to somehow be enhanced or embellished in some way to make it palatable for people, one might cynically assume that there had been a loss of confidence in the actual food that was being served, and because people were no longer confident with what they were serving up, They decided that it was going to be important for them to appear on roller skates or to burst into song or to let the band begin to play or to let the drama unfold before us. And so it is that I want to say to you this morning that when the Bible is proclaimed, as I seek to do for you today, the person who proclaims the Bible can take no credit for what is in the Bible. Somebody met me this morning who shall remain nameless, and they said, I'm coming to chapel to hear you talk. And I said, no, you're not. You may come to chapel to worship God and to listen to the Word of God, but don't, whatever you do, come to chapel to hear me talk. I wouldn't cross from here to the other end of the stage to hear me talk. And I, frankly, wouldn't cross the street to hear many people talk. Because there's a lot of places to go and there's a lot of things to do. So when we think about the Word of God being opened up to us, we ought not to be thinking about a man talking. We ought to be thinking about God speaking. And when you come to chapel, it is very, very important that that's your perspective. If you come and it's very easy to do, living in a rarefied atmosphere like this, to check off one speaker against last week's speaker and next month's speaker and the next speaker... Then you'll be able to give them scores out of ten for humor and for length and for accent and for endeavor and for all manner of things. But you may miss the fact that God speaks through His Word. I take no responsibility then for the food itself. It is God's food. I am largely responsible for the way it's laid out on the plate. And that's the three points to which I'm coming but I want you to realize that I'm not responsible for what happens to the food after you get it. I'm not here to jam it down your throat. I'm not here to force feed you. You may sit and do what you will with this. I feel no sense of burden. Save the burden to be the guy who carries it out and offers it to you. That's my job. Not to make you like it, not to make you like me, not to make you wish I could burst into song or came here on roller skates, but simply to be faithful and to say, listen, this book is a great book. It speaks of a God who is an awesome God. We are young men and women, at least some of you, and we recognize that we are here in this time-space capsule for a very brief time. What we do with our lives, what we do with the Word of God when it is proclaimed is in direct proportion to who we are, to what we will become, to the fathers we will become, the mothers we will become, and the people that we will become in our generation. And therefore, when we open the Bible on our laps every time, we are looking for God to speak. I am looking for God to speak so that I, along with you, might be overwhelmed afresh by the power that is in this book, the Bible. Now Paul is very clear that this teaching which Titus is to exercise is not to be random, nor is it to be sporadic. He is to teach certain things. That's verse 13. Verse 15, I beg your pardon. These are the things you should teach, he says. Listening to the teaching of Titus, we recognize that the people who listened to his letter were like us in many different ways. Not least of all, you will notice that they were people who were looking back. They were looking back, according to verse 11, to the time when the grace of God had appeared. The word which is used there is the word from which we get our word for uh, the advent experience of the arrival of Jesus Christ. And so he says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared. Jesus came. We remember his birth. We remember his life. We remember his death. We remember his resurrection and we remember his ascension. We have read of it and we know it to be historically true. And so they are people who are looking back to that, to the pivotal point in human history. Christians of all people ought to be able to understand human history. We don't understand human history by looking to uh, Beijing or by looking to London or to Washington, D.C. But we understand human history by looking up to the throne of God where God is working His purposes out. And at the exact moment in time that God decided, Jesus Christ appeared. And so the people were looking back to that. But also they were looking forward. You'll notice in verse 13 he says that we are waiting for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So we don't look back simply to what He has done in His coming, but we look forward to the fact that He's going to come again. And in the meantime, we live in between these two great events in human history. And he says, we are waiting. Now, you'll notice that phrase there in verse 13. At least you will if you have the NIV. It says, while we wait. While we wait. So the church is a waiting church. Now, there are all kinds of ways to wait. Every so often I go to the mall with my wife or my children, and I see men who are waiting some of them wait in the car. Some of them sit on those little benches around the mall by, a, by an ashtray, and they are waiting. Their faces say it all. There is little likelihood of anything happening within the foreseeable future, especially as it relates to the return of my wife. She has gone into the mall from whence she may never return. Nevertheless, I wait. And there they sit, old friends, sitting, sharing the fact that they are both waiting. One man looking across at the other, the other man looking back at him. A dreadful, pathetic picture. Lethargic, lethargic and hopeless. They are waiting. Similarly, have you seen a lady whose husband said, we will be home and we will go out to dinner just as soon as I get off the golf course? Have you seen her wait? As she takes her newly manicured nails and drums them on things, she's waiting. No prospect of his return in the foreseeable future, but still she waits. A kind of hopeless anxiety pervades her. Now, the waiting of the church is to be neither the the lethargy of the old man in the mall, nor the lady in the entrance hall, but it is to be the expectant waiting of those who believe that the things that we see are not real and the things that we don't see are real. Okay, that's what the Bible says. That which we can see is temporal and passing away and that which we can't see is eternal and lasts forever. So in other words, the Christian has a completely different view of the world. In coming to Christ. It was a mind-altering experience. We do not think the way the world thinks. We have been reprogrammed in our brains. And we have been completely changed because we look back to Calvary and we look forward to his return and we are waiting, as the hymn writer says, for the dawning of that bright and blessed day. Now, some of you are here and you're saying, well, yes, I'm waiting for the day, but I'm also waiting for my marriage day. And I'm kind of keen that I get married before he returns. Well, first of all, I I want to say to you, That is dreadful. And secondly, I understand because I remember feeling the exact same way. Lord, I'm very keen for you to come, but nowhere in just the immediate future, if you please. Because I would like to do this, and I'd like to do that, and I'd like to do the next thing. The fact is that the Lord is gracious and He knows our hearts. And when we get right down to it, and we think things really through, we realize that for us to wait is to wait in the framework of these three facts I promised them and here they are, alright three phrases you should be able to walk out from here trip on a stone, stand up and someone says, what was that about and you'll be able to say, it was about number one, for us, two words alright, I mean I don't want to be I don't want to stretch you on a day like this, okay each point has only got two words in it. So even the faculty will be able to remember this. All right? Uh, ooh. Incidentally, I just I was just with your faculty at 8 o'clock and had a tremendous time of prayer. And it was a very moving experience. And you should have been there to hear these folks pray for you, the student body, and uphold you and your needs and your lives. It, it, was, it was something worth being a part of and I was thankful for it anyway here it is three phrases number one for us you'll find it in verse 14 the phrase reads Jesus Christ who gave himself for us he gave himself for us now you remember that it is Paul who is writing this this was no arms length theology by the apostle Paul because he'd been Saul of Tarsus and he had hated the thought of Jesus. He denied his resurrection. He denied the reality of who and what he was. And his whole life was about stamping out Christianity. And yet Jesus, the same Jesus, had met him on the Damascus Road, had transformed his life, and he was able to say, the Son of God loved me and gave himself for me. And now he writes to Titus and he says, I want you to remind these people while they wait that Jesus gave himself for us. Now, this is where it could get a little hard because there are two sub-points. All right? For us, sub-point number one, we are purchased. We are purchased. In Galatians chapter 1, it says, he gave himself for our sins. In Ephesians chapter 5, it says, he gave himself up for us. If you allow your eyes to run forward to the verse 3 of chapter 3, you will notice what we were like before we came to Christ. We were foolish, we were disobedient, we were deceived, we were enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, we lived in malice and in envy, being hated and hating one another. That's what our culture is like, do you understand that? That's where our non-Christian friends live. That is a description of their lives. Foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by passions and by pleasures, but when Jesus Christ comes to purchase a life, He transforms those circumstances. When Peter writes about it, he says that Jesus has redeemed us from our empty way of life. Now, some of us were brought up in Christian homes. I was. And frankly, the lights have never gone on for us in relationship to this. We've been singing wide, wide as the ocean and high as the heavens above ever since we were knee-high to a grasshopper. We have gone through the system and we're still in the system. And maybe you've never taken a walk and God has broken your heart and made you understand what a miracle it is that He purchased your life. That He took you for Himself. That He knew you when you were intricately wrought in your mother's womb. That He knew you as a rebellious sinner when you were born. That He knew you enslaved. That He knew you lost. That He knew you and He purchased you. You! He didn't just purchase a big group and you happened to be in the bag. He purchased you. You. Have you ever got along with Jesus and thanked Him? Said, Lord Jesus, when I think of what I'm like, it's a miracle to me that I even have any friends, let alone that you, the Almighty God, would die for me. See, we this thing got played by bagpipes and, blood and, 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 and it all went crazy from there. Ever since the Royal Scots Dragoon Guard played Amazing Grace, that was the end of it, was it not? Once you get bagpipes playing a tune, you know there's nowhere further down it can go. The bagpipes were created as a joke by the Irish and sent to the Scots, and the Scots never got the joke. But we've become... We've become... we become so familiar with amazing grace and I incidentally blessed the heart of that guy. I remember him when he was a student here. That was great worship and I loved it. And I'm not demeaning a song not our worship. But isn't it isn't it true? How many of us really thought enough to, to induce tears in our eyes about the amazing grace of God? Think of where you'd be today, young person, were it not for God's grace, if he hadn't purchased you. Think where you might be. Think where I might be. Do you ever think about your school friends? Do you ever wonder why it is? How in a world is it that I am here? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? For me. I mean, I can understand why Christ would give His life for some others. But for me? For beg? And purchase? He gave Him Self for us purchased us the death of Jesus was a voluntary death it was a substitutionary death it was a propitiatory death if you don't know what that means just write them down and go away and find out I don't have time to tell you at all unto you says the angel is born this day a savior who is Christ the Lord Or you will call His name Jesus, for He will save His people from their sins. Some of you were still at school when that plane crashed in the Potomac River in Washington. Do you remember that? Christmas time. One of my daughters said to me on Sunday afternoon, said, Daddy, are you going to fly tomorrow? I said, yes. She said, will you make sure the pilot uh, scooshes the stuff on the wings? I said, what stuff? She said, because I saw on TV that if you don't get that stuff on the wings and those wings are too heavy, that plane can't fly and then you won't come back. So I said, yeah, I'll make sure he squishes it on the wings. But in the Potomac River, they didn't squish it on the wings quite enough. Some of you were just in junior high when that plane crashed. And if you remember the newsreel scenes of the man who went down into the water and rescued those people went back three times and the third time he never came up. The US government sent a medal, sent a charter, sent a plaque to his family and declared him a hero. But for two people who walk the streets of the continental United States this morning, he's something more than a hero. He's their savior. For if he had not gone down in there and given his life, they would not today enjoy their life. That's exactly what Jesus did. He's not just a hero. He's not a superstar He's a Savior. And what's more, He is my Savior. I'm fearful, loved ones, lest these truths can become so commonplace to us that they they, they barely move us at all. We are not only purchased, but we are also purified. Who gave Himself for us to redeem us. Now notice, from all wickedness from all wickedness. If you go back to verse 12, it says that his appearing is teaching us, the word there is pedagogue, to say no, teaching us to say no. You notice that Paul isn't concerned with our contemporary paranoia about being negative. The one thing you can't be these days is negative. Have you noticed that? Everything must be positive. We're a very positive church and we're a very practical church and we're not a negative church. Well, The fact of the matter is that we have to be positive where the Bible's positive and negative where it's negative and positively negative where necessary and negatively positive if we must. Which sounds a little bit like Polonius from Hamlet. At least I tried to make it sound a little like Polonius from Hamlet. Anyway, you remember that uh, comic historical tragical, tragical, historical. But anyway, let that pass, which is what also Polonius said in Hamlet. But anyway, now, notice, it teaches us to say no. The atonement has a dual aspect. When Jesus died upon the cross, He was freeing us from lawlessness and He was cleansing us from impurity. And He teaches us to say no. Do you know how important it is to know when to say no? The answer is yes. Of course, your answer may be no. In which case, I've got to tell you how important it is to learn to say no. Now, here's the difference between just say no and saying no. Just say no is a chronicle of despair. It cannot work. You cannot produce little banners that tell teenagers, just say no. Because teenagers ain't going to just say no. They don't want to say no. Because everything inside of them says, yes. And there is no act of Congress... That can, from the outside, turn a yes into a no. So the no here emerges from a purchased life. Somebody fell off their seat, it's okay. It emerges from a purchased life. You can't be purified without being purchased. And that's why you see you can come to a you can come to a school like this, you can come from a Christian home, you can know the hymn book, backside foremost, and you can say the books of the Bible, and your life may be a walking contradiction this morning. And you're trying to do everything from the outside in, and Jesus has never done in your life what needs to be done from the inside out. You don't even know what it is to be purchased. And that's why you're not purified. Purity is not a good idea. Purity is an absolute necessity. He teaches us to say no. We used to sing a chorus when I was a little boy in Scotland that said, Learn to say no, learn to say no to everything evil wherever you go. Sounds kind of corny, doesn't it? But that's the key. Do you see all the pastors crashing down because of moral failure? What happened to them? Well, one of the things happened to them is that they they, they forgot how to say no. Well, they told others how to say no, but they never said no themselves. That would be ridiculous for me to stand up here and tell you these things. And then to live a lie, would it not? He gave Himself for us. We're purchased, we're purified. Secondly, for Him. For Him. He gave Himself for us to purify for Him. Now again, there's 2 subpoints. Let me give them to you. Since we are for Him, we notice that we are planned, and secondly, that we are peculiar. We're planned. He planned to have us. From all of eternity, it's God's unmistakable purpose to have a people of His own, and it is the utterly undeserved privilege of all who are in Christ to be included among that family. Jesus made it perfectly clear when He preached, John chapter 6, He made it really clear when he prayed, John chapter 17. And certainly no one was more surprised than Saul of Tarsus when on the Damascus Road, as I said, Jesus met with him. And remember Ananias, who had the unsavory prospect of having to deal with Saul of Tarsus. Jesus says to Ananias, he says, you better go and do what I'm telling you because this man, Saul of Tarsus, is my chosen instrument to bear my name before the Gentiles. I remember Johnny Carson saying what do you say in response to your teenager who says um, I didn't ask to be born Johnny Carson said no and the reply is and if you had asked I would have said no the fact of the matter is in spiritual terms you didn't ask to be born either did you? well you say yeah in a measure I did I mean I came to Christ of course you did you repented of your sins yeah you placed your faith and trust in Jesus yeah Well, what do you see looking back? You see the truth of the hymn we sometimes sing, I found a friend or such a friend, he loved me ere I knew him. That God was at work, he planned this thing. He planned it. And so I'm planned. I don't know why God's wondrous grace to me has been made known, or why, unworthy as I am, he bought me for his own. But I know whom I have believed. He planned for it. And because he planned, we're peculiar. Now that is immediately apparent as we look around at some of our friends this morning. Some of us can see that. We are a peculiar group of people. But the peculiarity here is a peculiarity which comes from belonging to Him. Because we are His very own. When I go out in my yard in the afternoon or in the evening when I come home from work, And there's children all over the place and they're all on the trampoline. The trampoline I bought for my youngest child's birthday and told her only one person on the trampoline at a time, please. Oh, yes, Daddy, thank you for the trampoline, A lovely trampoline, one at a time. I drive my car up the drive. I swear to goodness, there's 12 people on that trampoline at one time, going everywhere. So I pull the car and I go, Oh! Now, I can guarantee one gets off out of the 12. Mine, Emily, she gets off. The other 11 are gone. who's he? <laughs> what, what, what do we have to do? Some guy drives out the drive and shouts off, and that's supposed to change our lives? See, they don't belong to me. They're not my very own. But my girls, they're my very own. And the very fact that they're my very own accounts for their peculiarity. After all, you would expect them to be peculiar with a father like me, would you not? Yes, from what we've seen of you so far, sir, the answer is yes to that one. They pertain to me, that is their peculiarity. Do your children speak with an accent? Yes, they do. An American accent. Now that's peculiar. And so the fact of the matter is the peculiarity that attaches to Christians is not a peculiarity that is supposed to be external, first of all. Because we could do that, you know, we could wear, we could wear pointed hats or something or one gigantic plastic ear that was painted green and then we could, then we could go in, in, into Los Angeles and people say, oh, there's the Christians. The, the green ears. Here come the green ears. So I have one huge ear. And Christianity has tried to do that. You wear navy blue suits and you have a certain kind of shirt like, like this and you do the whole thing and, Now we look very Christian. We look like a bunch of Mormon missionaries riding around the neighborhood. That's not the peculiarity we're supposed to have. Let me tell you what's supposed to make us peculiar. The peculiarity is because we belong to Jesus and we know that we're purchased. So we're not flotsam and jetsam on a great continuum of life. We know that we are purchased. We know that we are purified. We know that we are planned. And that deals with our self-image dilemma that somebody way before uh, time began had determined that I would be intricately wrought in my mother's womb and he cares about me and loves me and therefore on account of that there is a peculiarity that attaches to me so the peculiarity of integrity in a world that is doing dirty deals go out into business and live integrity and you'll be peculiar the peculiarity of reality in a world that is made of cardboard people meeting people and the superficiality that just pervades our culture it's, is arrested when you meet somebody that, that seems to actually be looking you in the eye, that seems to be actually listening to what you're saying, that seems to be genuinely concerned in who and what you are. That's peculiar. That's frankly peculiar in most of our churches, isn't it? I mean, the average Sunday you walk up the hall hollow and you go and a morning, 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 morning. Or, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, how are you? Good, 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 good. A bunch of people just walking around. Good, 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 good. Well, I want to know, if everybody's so good, why are you all coming to see me every blooming afternoon of my life? You're not all good. So we're con artists. You want to be peculiar? Tell the truth. Morning, how are you? Bad. (laughs) Nobody knows what to do. Peculiarity of integrity where the world is shady, of reality where the world is cardboard, and of purity where the world is dirty. I'm not going to assume anything at a college like this. Nothing. In fact, I'll tell you what I'm going to assume. I'm going to assume that a college like this is populated by saved sinners. Okay? So that the power of sin has been broken in our lives, but it still remains. It no longer reigns, but it remains. Therefore, the downward pull is there. Therefore, all the temptations that are known to man are present in your lives. And the call to live in purity is a realistic call. Final point, and I'm done first point was for us are you with me? you can talk to me yes? yes three of you okay for us we are purchased we are purified okay for him we are planned we are peculiar last point for good He gave himself for us to redeem us from all unwickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own eager to do what is good. So we are purchased, we are planned, and we are for good. This is the reason that we exist. The whole book of Titus, if you go through it, there's three chapters and work out how many times he says the reason that you are saved is so that you would be eager to do good. Eager to do good. In other words, we are to be two things. And they both begin with, with P. Well, you're not surprised because the rest did. Here they are. For good, we are to be practical. Practical. What good is a Christianity that doesn't ever touch the ground? Last summer, my mother and father-in-law came to stay. I always remember when they come to stay and in an uncharacteristic act of generosity because it was rather hot it was about 85 or 90 degrees I determined that since they were there I, the little Scotsman would go and turn on the air conditioning because the temperature had not gone down in the evening and it was stinking hot to coin a phrase and so I went down the stairs and I pressed the button and smiled to myself as the noise started there I said that's just lovely went back to my bed and lay there just sweating all through the night. Went down in the morning and couldn't understand why it was that after I'd gone, pressed the button, heard the noise, nothing happened. The answer was that while there had been power to make that noise, there had been no power to kick in the cooling unit itself. So we had the button pressed, the right noises but no change in temperature why is the Christian church in our generation so patently ineffective in so many areas I'll tell you why because our churches are populated with people who press the button made the noise but there's no change it's like when you drive down the freeway and you see those signs men at work have you ever seen men at work They're never there. There's bollards everywhere. The whole place, the the state of Ohio. Forget the Buckeye. They're just going to put one of those big cones in the center of the flag for Ohio now because these suckers are everywhere. But there's nobody working. That's the average church. The sign's up, men at work. Where are the men? They're no place. Where are the men on the mission field? Where are the men that are prepared to sacrifice their lives in the cause of Jesus Christ and give up their small ambitions and do it for Christ, irrespective of gain, irrespective of anonymity, irrespective of whatever it might be? Where are the guys? We are to be for good. We are to be practical. And finally, we are to be passionate. Passionate. Eager to do good. Zealous. We are to say no to worldly passions, but we're not to be passionless. The Puritans, if you read the Puritans, and you can read them in a Packer's book, A Quest for Godliness, in there Packer says that the, the effectiveness of the Puritans was largely due to the fact that they combined a warm-hearted compassion with a clear-minded passion. A warm-hearted compassion with a clear-minded passion. Passionate for God, passionate for good passionate for the cause of Christ can I ask you what are you passionate about would you die for anything would you live for anything would you turn over all your plans for anything John Oxenham's poem I probably quoted it to you before to every man there openeth a way and a ways and a way and the high soul tread the high road and the low soul gropes the low and in between, on the misty flats, the rest drift to and fro. That's the average local church. You're going to be in one one day. You'll have to go to the nursery one day and get your snotty little kid. You'll have to go with a little diaper bag and hand them in, number 21. You think it isn't coming, it's coming. And then they grow, and then they answer back, and then they grow above you. And you're still stuck with a responsibility. Now you have a heritage coming behind you. Are you going to get holy that day, young man? Are you going to get serious about God that day, mom? Are you going to all of a sudden overnight become a prayer? Are you going to all of a sudden be concerned about evangelism? Are you all of a sudden going to be that person on that day? Let me tell you, what you are on that day is what you are today times X. There is no time, but today you have no tomorrow. You only have today. And that's why I came to tell you these three things. He gave Himself for us. We're purchased, we're purified. So that we might be for Him, we're planned and we're peculiar. And so that we might live for good, that we would be practical and that we would be passionate. Ah, don't you just long to see some folks passionate for the cause of Jesus Christ? Passionate for the evangelism of the world? Don't you long to become one of those people? You remember it was the wee guy, D.L. Moody, who heard a man say one day, the world has yet to see what God can do with a life wholly given over unto him and D.L. Moody sitting there said God helping me I'll be that man let's pray together Father I thank you for this great group of students I thank you for their willingness to come in here today in the midst of all that their lives represent I thank you for the privilege of opening up your word we want to hear you speak we thank you Father that you have sent Jesus for us that we might live for Him, that we might be for good. In the hours of this day, in the walking to and fro, in the thinking out our lives, our hopes, our dreams, our schemes, may these simple yet important truths harness our meanderings and direct our steps So that we might be a help to one another and not a hindrance. So that we might be able to look back on these college days and know that we set our course according to your word. Bless us in the hours of this day. For Jesus' sake we ask it. Amen.